0: Well, like Dana, I am very proud of you all for being here this morning. That was some loud rain and the wind. As I was pulling in, there were some women with their umbrellas coming in. The wind literally was blowing sideways. And I was like, go, ladies, go. (laughs) You can do this. So I am so proud of all of you for being here Um, and excited about the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, talking about what it means to be rooted and established in Christ Christ. And let's look at verses 4 through 15 in Colossians chapter 2. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. "'having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him "'and established in your faith just as you were instructed "'and overflowing with gratitude. "'See to it that no one takes you captive "'through philosophy and empty deception "'according to the tradition of men, "'according to the elementary principles of the world "'rather than according to Christ. "'For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, "'and in him you have been made complete.' And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. "'having forgiven us all our transgressions, "'having canceled out the certificate of debt "'consisting of decrees against us, "'which was hostile to us, "'and he has taken it out of the way, "'having nailed it to the cross. "'When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, "'he made a public display of them, "'having triumphed over them through him.'" Hallelujah. Did you notice all the in hymns, in Christ, in hymns that we read? We are rooted, we are stable, we are steadfast because we are in him and he is faithful and true and steadfast. He began this passage by saying, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. You know, there are a lot of persuasive arguments out there. There are a lot of people trying to persuade you not to believe in the word of God, to cast suspicion and doubt on the character of God. Sounds just like the garden. In Genesis 3, does it not? Satan has not changed his tactics. And I had the blessing this past week of helping one of my senior girls. In fact, if you're not teaching in children's ministry or youth ministry, you're not serving somewhere, I ask you to pray about joining us this summer in either the children's ministry or the youth ministry. It is an incredible opportunity to pour into the next generation and to help them lay this firm foundation that all of us are studying about together. And to be able to do that, you get to do it with a team of two or three people in a small group and I have senior girls and I've been with this group of girls since they were sophomores so I tell you what I have in love with them and one of them was given an assignment to, a, to do a presentation at school so Sunday before last she came over to my house and we spent a couple of hours just kind of walking through getting things lined up and she was practicing and this was what she had to do a presentation on why would a loving God send people to hell Now, that's the question that many non-believers want to ask Christians to try to trip us up, right? Okay, well, we had to kind of tear this apart and think about, all right, how do we know he's a loving God? Now, if you look at history and you look at the violence in our world, if you look at the way people treat each other on social media, you would not come up with the conclusion that God is a loving God. If you look at other religions, there is not another religion that tells us God is loving tells us God is just, but it doesn't tell us God is loving. The only way we know God is loving is because God has revealed himself to us through his word. It's because the Bible tells us so. So we had to establish that from the beginning, that the only way we know God is loving is based on the word of God. Not only that, when you begin to think about why we're separated from God in the first place, We have to go back to Genesis chapter three and remember that it was God who created us and everything he created was good and he declared us very good. And all was well until sin entered. We know that the wages, the paycheck of sin is death. And when sin entered in Genesis chapter three, when man chose to rebel against God and to want to be God, sin separated us from God and we are now by default headed toward hell. Hell is our default destination because we are sinners hopelessly separated from a loving, good God. We needed a rescuer. And because God is good and loving, he sent his son, his only son, through the womb of a virgin to live life on earth like we were unable to with out sin so that he could take our place on the cross purchasing with his blood a right relationship with with God for us that we might once again be with him for all of eternity that he might provide the way back to God that's proof that God is loving and God doesn't send anyone to hell our sin sends us there But that's just one of the ways that the world tries to cast doubt on the goodness and the character of God by trying to persuade us to believe in the world's logic. So we go to the word of God to establish our faith for it to be stable. He was commending them for the stability of their faith. And to be stable means to be steadfast, secure, strong, solid, firm, immovable. That is what we are to be because we are in Christ Jesus and because those words describe Jesus. So because we're in him, we can be steadfast and stable. But then we're commanded to walk in him and we saw that in Colossians 1:10 that we're to walk in a manner worthy of him to please him in all respects and once again in 6 and 7 it says therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude this implies what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that to walk literally means the way you live. It's not just following someone on a path. And in fact, last year, Dana brought out how Jewish people thought about a rabbi. They would follow their rabbi so closely as they walked with him that the dust from the rabbi's sandals would literally come up on them. They would be covered with the dust of their rabbi. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I walking with Jesus so closely That his dust is on me, or am I walking in the world, and do I have the dust of the world? Am I walking with Christ? Because we are to walk in him, and if we do that, we will be rooted. Now, we talked about the root system of trees in our workbook this past week, and I looked up some information on redwoods. Redwoods are massive trees, and they have appropriately large root systems, However, often extending over 100 feet and intertwining with the roots of other redwoods, according to the California Department of Parks and Recreation. Now listen to this, though. Baby redwoods often sprout at their parents' base, latching onto their roots for nutrients. For this reason, they often grow in circular clusters, sometimes called fairy rings. Now we are rooted in Christ, and our roots go down deep into the Word of God, and the Word of God is our firm foundation. But God created us for community, and so we need for our roots to intertwine, especially new believers. Did you notice that? The baby redwoods would sprout, and their roots would literally attach to the root system of the parent so they could draw nutrients from them. That's why we need each other. We need to be nourished and encouraged and challenged in our walk with Christ, and we need for our roots to be intertwined so that When the winds of this world come against us, when the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties that we face in this life come against us, not only are we rooted and grounded in Christ, but we have each other to help hold us stable. And when one falls down, what do we do? We come alongside and we lift them up and we walk with them until they're strong enough to walk. And then when they come along, somebody else, it's What Paul talked about, comforting others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. We know the faithfulness of God because we have experienced him in the valleys. And we experience him in relationship with other believers who encourage us and stand with us and are for us. We're created for community, for family, for the family of God. When we were celebrating the life of my father, Steve's message was based on Isaiah 61 about oaks of righteousness, because he really was that for our family. He was that steadfast oak of righteousness. And it says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Whose splendor are we displaying? His splendor. Not our splendor. Not the splendor of our family, but his splendor. We are to display his splendor. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 talks about trees as well. How blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. If we will immerse ourselves in the word of God and absorb the nutrients from Christ himself, of being in him, established in him, rooted in him. We will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. Not only that, our lives will be fruitful. We will bear spiritual fruit, and others will be nourished and encouraged by the fruit in our lives. So we're to be rooted in him, but we're also to be built up in Christ. We know from John 15 that apart from him, we can do nothing. So we've got to be rooted, but we've also got to be built up in him. And that's why Paul over and over is telling us we have all of this because we're in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do with us alone. And then we're to be established in our faith. Our faith is in Christ alone, not in our abilities, not in our talents, not in our giftings, not in the group of people that we're with. We are literally established by faith in him without which it's impossible to please God. And we know that we walk by faith and not by sight. So we are not those who evaluate based on the natural and what we can see. We believe God's word and we act based on his word by faith. And then he allows us to see as we've established throughout scripture, God has revealed that to us. And then he went on to say that if you do this, what will depict your life? You will be overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude is proof of the root. If we are rooted in Christ and we are built up in him and we are walking in faith, gratitude will come forth from us because we will be overwhelmed and overflowing with all that we have been given because we are in Christ. In fact, Max Anders in his commentary says a thankful believer is not Easily led away from Christ. A discontented, grumbling, whiny believer, however, will be easy prey for false teachers who are more than willing to offer just what you've been missing. So he went from that and tells us in verse 9. That in him all, well, let's go back to verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete or mature, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So we are not to be taken captive by the philosophy or their traditions of men, we see that Jesus was steadfast. He was stable. He was immovable. He was about the Father's business. And he went to the cross. And even on the cross, he was taunted and told to save himself. But he could not save himself and save us. Just like we cannot save ourselves and live for Christ Jesus told those who followed him if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me you know most of these philosophies and arguments appeal to the sin-filled and self-centered ego of man these arguments make sense to the logical mind because God's ways are not man's ways That's why you can listen to someone who's good with words and they can almost persuade you, can they not, to believe some of the things that they're arguing for or against. That's why you've got to take all of the teachings back to the word of God and make sure they line up with the truth of God's word. It doesn't matter who's teaching you, you've got to make sure that what you're hearing, what you're being taught, lines up with the truth of God's word. We talked about and looked at in our workbook this week and we were asking, what are some of the philosophies of the world that you've heard and been impacted by? And I think a lot of times we don't realize how much we've been impacted until we get in a study like this and suddenly it's revealed some of the false things we've been believing or depending on. Some of the elementary principles of the world. In fact, N.T. Wright said, All power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, or racial, have the potential to become rivals to Christ, beckoning his followers to submit themselves to them in order to find a fuller security. The invitation is as blasphemous as it is unnecessary. Christ brooks no rivals. His people need no one but him. What did it just tell us? We are complete in Christ. It is Christ plus nothing. Nothing. When we have Christ, we have all that we need. And because we are believers, we are in Christ Jesus. And the next verses tell us that we have been circumcised. But it's a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision like the Jews took part in. Look back at verses 11 and 12. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In physical circumcision, the flesh is cut away. In spiritual circumcision, the fleshly heart is removed, and we're given a new heart. I've mentioned to you in the past Paige Brown. She teaches at West End Community Church in Nashville, and I listen to her messages periodically. Last week, she was teaching a message out of 1 Samuel, and it was on Saul and his heart. In fact, her whole series this time is called It's the Heart, Stupid. <laughs> because we want to make it about everything else, but it keeps coming back to the heart. And so that was, she's pointing out, okay, the people got what they wanted in Saul. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was good looking. He looked like a king. And what did they want? We want a king like everybody else, right? So God says, okay, give them what they want. But they had a king whose heart was not turned toward God. It was turned toward himself. And we see that he went on a path of rejecting God and she used an analogy about heart transplants and you know when an organ transplant takes place there's always the risk of rejection. Sometimes it's acute rejection and in others there's chronic rejection and I want us to consider the parable of the souls as we think about our own hearts because obviously the good soul here is talking about the heart. Listen to Matthew 13. Jesus spoke to them in parables, and he said, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now let's listen to how Jesus gave the explanation of the parable, which he did to his disciples. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, that's the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth or riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Think about your heart as soil and the seed of the word that's being scattered here this morning. Not only that, the seed of the word that you partook of this week as you studied, as you opened the word of God every day in your personal time with the Lord when you open the word the seed of the word is coming into your heart is your heart good soul is your heart tender toward the things of the Lord or are you allowing the deceitfulness of riches and the distractions of the world and worry to come in and choke out the word but it doesn't just choke out the word it also hardens our heart Listen to the definitions, and this is from Cedar sinais transplant website. This is a definition for acute rejection. The most common type of heart transplant rejection is called acute cellular rejection. This happens when your T cells, part of your immune system, attack the cells of your new heart. It happens most often in the first three to six months after transplant. That's the one that, oh, it springs up fast and it looks good, but what? It's not rooted, it's temporary. And so the worries and the cares of the world pull it out, take it away. It doesn't last. The heart's not good. The heart's not been transplanted. It doesn't take. But then there's chronic rejection, which is, I think, probably where many of us would fall. Heart transplant rejection can also be long-term or chronic. Coronary artery vasculopathy is a form of chronic rejection. It affects the coronary arteries. These supply the heart muscle with oxygen and nutrients. And coronary artery vasculopathy, now listen to this, the inner lining of the blood vessel thickens. This can lead to less blood going to the heart muscle. And you know what's so tragic about this? They don't realize it's happening until the symptoms are so evident that the heart is already in failure. Our hearts can also thicken and harden because of sin. And then our hearts are not good soil. But what did it say about the good soil? The the soul that's had the weeds pulled out, the soul that is intent and focused upon the word of God and the God of the word. That soul not only receives the seed, but it bears a harvest some a hundredfold. That's above and beyond anything that you would expect. That's what God does in a heart that's turned toward Him. And obviously, in Paige Brown's message, she's contrasting the heart of Saul with the heart of David. Because after Saul proved to have chronic rejection and rejected the Lord, God did what? He rejected Saul. And he removed his hand from Saul. And what did God tell Samuel? I'm now going to choose a man who has a heart after me. A man after God's own heart. And I believe as women, we need to choose to be women after God's own heart. And ask the Lord to show us, is there any coronary artery disease (laughs) In my heart. Lord, remove my heart of stone. Remove my heart of flesh and give me a new heart. A heart that that pants for you. A heart that longs for you and pants for you like the deer pants for the water brook. We have to kill the sin so that the sin does not kill us. It's Galatians 2.20. We are to live the crucified life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. and the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm to live the crucified life. And every day, as Jesus said, I've got to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus to have a good heart. It takes that daily death to the flesh so that my heart is tender and receptive and good soul. We have victory already. In Christ he has purchased it for us he just past tense here you are complete you have been made complete you are mature we have it all we just must appropriate it by faith and it takes death to the flesh so that we die to doing it our way and we begin to live for Christ and in Christ and he changes everything holding on to our sin will cause our hearts to harden and our ears to grow dull We will no longer hear his voice or sense his presence. Even though we're new creatures with a new heart, we still have a sin nature we have to stand against and die to. That's what he's talking about, what we have to die to on a daily basis. I'm um, into writing his commentary, said it is this overlap of the two, he calls them ages of Jewish expectation, that brings about the characteristic paradoxes and tensions of Paul's view of the Christian life. At one moment, he must emphasize, as here, that believers already partake in the life and power of Christ's resurrection. At another, he must stress the consequent obligation to put to death all that still remains of the old sinful nature. Don't you wish it was a one and done? <laughs> Don't you wish you could just go, okay, today I'm dying to sin forevermore. But it doesn't work that way because we're still in these bodies of flesh and we're still hearing the voice of the evil one and the voice of the world. And we're having to combat that by immersing ourselves in the word of God so that we so know the truth that we immediately reject the lie. We refuse it entrance into our minds. We talked about that earlier so that our minds have to become almost like Teflon. We're so in tune with the spirit that we reject the lie and we don't allow it to be implanted in our hearts or minds because we're protecting the soil of our heart. We're keeping our hearts tender and turned toward Jesus. Now these last verses, oh my goodness, it's just like it's almost too much to wrap our mind around. Look at 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. That means the IOU that you have and that I have, the one that if we rolled it out would just keep rolling, right? Our IOU, our sin debt was literally nailed to the cross when Christ was nailed to that cross because he bore my sin and your sin in his body on that tree. He became... a curse for us. We lived under a curse and Christ became that curse so that we might be set free from the curse and live in shalom. And shalom is not just peace. Shalom is flourishing, well-being, delight. It's what Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin entered in Genesis 3. That is what is restored for us in Christ Jesus. He canceled our debt, but not only that, He disarmed, in verse 15, the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Jesus lived the life we could not live, defeating the enemy with the word of God. Now, listen, this is something that the Lord just gave to me this weekend at Catalyst. And the speaker was speaking. He did an excellent job, and it really had nothing to do with this, except that he did say that he defeated the enemy by saying, it is written. And we've been saying all along, when the enemy hits you with what ifs, you come back to him with what is. It is written. But what hit me that I don't think I'd seen before, that because Jesus walked in perfection perfect intimacy and union with the Father, he was able to be tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. How did he defeat the enemy? When the temptation came, he said, it is written. Boom. He used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And because he was victorious in every temptation by saying, it is written. And only because of that could he on the cross say, it is finished. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He canceled out your debt and he disarmed Satan. Do you understand that? He's disarmed. He cannot harm you. He can only discourage, distract, and lie to you, but he cannot harm you unless you believe the lie that's why we have to know the truth and follow the example of our savior because we've been given victory we've been given the holy spirit to live within us the very power of god that raised jesus from the dead lives within our physical body so we are to walk as he walked remember follow your rabbi so closely that his dust is up on you so we're to walk in him and as we're walking with jesus we will respond as he did and say it is written It is written. And so we refute the lie with the truth of God's word, but we must know the truth and wield our sword well to walk in victory. And it takes a daily death to the flesh, but when we do it, which is painful, I I understand it can be very painful to die to our flesh, to die to our desires, to die to the things that we think we want, the things that we think we need, but it's a lie because all we need is Jesus. Remember Jesus plus nothing. All the fullness of deity dwelled within him in bodily form. And because we are in Christ, we are complete. Now let's live from that completion, from the victory that we've been given because we are in Jesus Christ. Once again, N.T. Wright, you got to love him. His commentary is amazing. Listen to this. The phrase triumphing over them alludes metaphorically to the practice of Roman generals following a conquest. In the days before the modern news media, the most spectacular method of announcing a far-off victory to people at home was to march in triumph through the city, displaying the booty taken from conquered peoples and leading a host of bedraggled prisoners through the streets as a public spectacle. He said he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Not only did he make a public display on the cross, he made a public display by taking satan and all the host of the evil one captive and parading them through heaven as conquered foes so they are disarmed they are conquered and we have the victory because of christ we've got to change the way we think make sure it lines up with the truth of god's word So that we're also able to say at the end of our lives, it is written, it is finished, and it is well.